Hosea was a prophet. Yes, he was. He was a messenger. And he faced his people at an awkward time. We have three simple, singular verses to lift as a text today. And we'll start with Hosea 4, verse 1. Would you stand, please? Under the heading, The Charge Against Israel, verse 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Turning over to Hosea 6, 3. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And on to chapter 10, verse 12. Some instruction. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. And break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes. And showers righteousness on you. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Irene, did you bring the flowers? Thank you. Are those from your garden? Well, I'm going to say, wow, they're hardy if they are. Well, thank you. They're beautiful. Um, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Uh, I grew up most of my life in um, Nampa, Idaho, and so our family attended Nampa College Church of the Nazarene. And for a number of years, that was an anthem that the choir sang every Sunday morning at the beginning of worship service. And uh, Ruby Sander was on the piano and Aline Swan was on the organ. And I know we, we have an issue with loud music, but uh, we had st- thick stained glass windows and I think it even vibrated those. So, But... It was uh, just wonderful. I remember to come into that great anthem every Sunday morning. Brought back a lot of memories. Um, uh, I have this problem. I, I've shared it with you before. I think it comes from my teaching background. I, I have a tendency to over-prepare. So what I'm going to do this morning, because I think I over-prepared is uh, break this sermon into, instead of one really long one, you're going to get two shorter ones. And I will tell you this. I've had people complain to me about preaching too long, but I've never had anyone complain to me about preaching too short. (laughs) And, this, you know, for some I know it's like the sooner you can get out of here and beat the Baptist to your favorite restaurant, the happier you'll be. So... So there you go. So we're going to, uh, 
And we've got communion today on top of that, so it'll, it'll all work out. Um, so you're going to get a part one of, of what's going to turn out to be a two-part message from uh, the prophet Hosea. Um, we've shared this with you before. We lived in eastern Oregon and pastored there for 17, well, we lived there for longer than that, but pastored for 17 years. We lived in in Hermiston, and our home there was um, on a uh, a lot that was long and narrow. We had a large property, but not much property on each side of the house, but we had a lawn that went way, way to the back. Um, when we bought the place, there was a strip of ground at the very back of the property that went from fence to fence across the uh, the back of the property. Um, and it was not part of the lawn. Um, it wasn't covered by the sprinkler system that I had. I'm not sure why I'd been left this way, except that uh, the previous owner had used it as kind of a dumping place for, you know, uh, lawn clippings and yard debris and stuff like that. Um, so uh, other than a compost pile of sorts, um, the only thing... On that piece of ground was a bunch of weeds. Um, the soil was unwatered. It was hard. It was unproductive. Uh, all the rest of the property was, you know, covered by lawn, and we had some shrubs and some flowers and places and things like that. But this strip across the back of the property was fallow, unused ground. So I decided to do something with that fallow ground. So. Uh, just to kind of separate it from the rest of the yard, and because it wasn't covered by the sprinkler system, I bordered it with railroad ties. And then I used a rototiller to break up that soil. And then I planted some seeds, and I rigged up this little watering system for it. And I was able to grow a garden in that spot that for years had said untouched, unwatered, and unproductive. And so what had previously only grown weeds now grew tomatoes and squash and green beans and bell peppers and radishes and carrots and sometimes peas or lettuce or onions and potatoes. Never had much luck with corn. Um, But I had to break up that fallow ground first. If I'd left that ground untouched and scattered vegetable seeds across it, little or probably nothing would have grown there. But when I worked the soil and I planted good seed and I watered it, good things began to grow there. That ground that had once been fallow now became productive. And I will tell you that that can be a picture of our lives, or maybe I should say our hearts. We can have this tendency to allow the soil of our hearts to become fallow at times, like that little strip of ground at the back of my property. The prophet Hosea was called by God to bring to the attention of Israel that their hearts had become like fallow ground. So the instruction, as Gail read these scriptures for us, is to break up the unproductive, unplowed ground, preparing their hearts for the work God wanted to do among them. 
There was a preparation process. If God was going to do a work among them, there had to be a preparation process. And he said, when you're prepared, I will bring rains of righteousness. That, I think, was kind of a descriptive word of what God would do among them once the soil of their hearts was prepared for the work that God wanted to do. I'm expecting God to do something new among us in 2020. I'm hoping for showers of righteousness, whatever that may look like for us. But if we expect God to act, then we must make sure our hearts are ready for what He wants to do. We have to prepare our hearts for the work God wants to do among us. Um, and as, I'm going to reread these, just kind of to give us an idea of what's going on here. Um, first of all, uh, basically, Hosea is saying, here's the issue. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. Here's the problem. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Not sounding too good. So, then he tells them, let us acknowledge the Lord, let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. Now, what he's saying is, if we acknowledge the Lord, if we press on to acknowledge Him, then as surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. That's a refreshing sounding thing to me. Certainly when you consider the land of Israel, it was refreshing. And then he goes on in um, chapter 10, verse 12. Here's what you need to do besides acknowledge me. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. This is all heart preparation stuff. For it is time to seek the Lord until He comes and showers His righteousness on you. So, there's a promise here. If you do these things, this is what I'll do. That's what God's saying. So, let's talk. Here's what I want to talk about in Part A today, and we'll get Part B next week. Part A, things that harden the soil. Things that harden the soil. Hosea said in his message from God, number one, there is no truth. Now, you're saying, wait, that's not what it says in the version you read. Well, Hosea says there is no faithfulness. But if you read this verse in some translations, it says there is no truth. That's because the Hebrew root word here um, is a word that means truth or reliability, faithfulness. It can be translated either way. We kind of talked about that in Sunday school a little bit this morning. Sometimes these, the original language, there's kind of different meanings and and so you kind of got to figure out what God's saying in, in each particular situation. So the first charge that he, that he has against the people is that there is no truth in the land. There's no truth in what the people are saying. There was no honesty in their actions. They no longer trusted one another. And they were not keeping their word. There was no trustworthiness. They were not reliable. By the way, the Hebrew word for truth is emeth. 
which means truthfulness in all aspects of life, not just what comes out of your mouth. Truthfulness in all aspects of life. And this, this truthfulness was absent in Israel when Hosea brought this prophet, prophetic word to them. So, great, that's nice. How's that apply to us? Well, the questions we need to ask are, do we practice what we preach? Do we walk the talk? See, that's the truthfulness that Hosea spoke of and something that we can easily fall short of. It, it's, it can be the problem of the Sunday Christian, we'll call it. We give lip service to God, but we don't live the lifestyle His Word calls us to live, except maybe on Sunday when we kind of get all cleaned up. Okay, all cleaned up. See, God wants His people to live His truth day in and day out, all the time, even when nobody's watching. Isn't that kind of a description of integrity, they say? Doing the right thing even when no one is watching. God wants us to live lives of integrity. Consistent lives of integrity. And if we talk the talk but fail to back up our testimony with our lives, God can make the charge against us that there is no truth. The second issue here was that there is no love. He said there's no love in the land. Boy, we could... We, we might easily say that about our own condition as a country right now. Boy, look at the rancor and division and... Whew. The, the word used here um, is chesed or hesed. This meant compassionate love or one, or, or one com- commentary called it loving kindness. This is compassion and genuine concern for our fellow man. And, and Hosea, in bringing God's message to the people of Israel, said, uh, you don't have compassion and genuine concern for your fellow man. And the key word here being genuine. In other words, it must come from the heart. Um, you know, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says you can do all these things, but if you have not love, it's worthless. So that's what God's talking about here. You can, you can do nice things for people, but if it doesn't come from a heart of love, uh, you get a zero with God. And Israel came up short here. The rich got richer. The poor got taken, taken advantage of. People didn't care for the needs of one another. See, the question on everyone's mind at that point, if not on their lips, was, what's in it for me? I mean, even sometimes when you do do nice things for people, it's basically a matter of, um, you know, racking up a few goodie points. You know, kind of tipping the scales in your favor with God. Some, some people try to do that. Don't they? 
Let, let's, uh, if I do, uh, like, for some people, going to church is that. that. That tips the scales in their favor with God. Well, I go to church. Or I, 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 I put money in the offering. Or, you know, um, I show up and work at the food pantry once a month. Or the list goes on. We're just, really, it's... It, it, at heart, it's what's in it for me. I'm just trying to tip the scales in my favor with God. So, if we look at this, what it really means to love people, how do we stack up? How much compassion do we have for our fellow man? There's a story that's been out there for a long time, and you may have heard it before. I may have told it to you before, but I'm going to tell it to you again, because sometimes these stories are good enough to hear more than once. Once there was a small group of people who had been rescued from, a drowning, from drowning off a rocky shoreline. They were so grateful for being rescued that they decided to build a rescue station on the coast with the mission of saving others who may get into trouble in the dangerous rocky waters off the coast. As time went by, the members of this rescue station were able to rescue a great many people, and inevitably, some of those they rescued were so grateful that they chose to stay and be part of the rescue station crew. They, too, wanted to make sure that others were rescued from the dangerous waters along the coast. As the station's crew grew in number, they were able to effect more and more rescues, but in order to do so, they needed more equipment. They raised money, they gave their own money, they found benevolent people to donate to the cause, and they were able to build a larger and nicer rescue station. As their work continued, the members of the station crew also began to develop strong friendships. After all, they had a lot in common. They had all been rescued. They were all in the business of rescuing others. So, soon a strong social life began to develop among those at the rescue station. They would have nice activities to celebrate where they had come from. They would have parties to enjoy one another's company. They would have nice get-togethers just for the sake of getting together. As time went by and the station was remodeled, added to and got nicer, and as the crowd became friendlier and friendlier with each other, they began to lose sight of their mission. Oh, they still rescued some people when they had time. But before the rescuees could enter the beautiful new station, they had to clean up. The people being rescued couldn't be allowed to get the station dirty, you know. Before long, the rescue station evolved into a beautiful club. The rescue motif was strong, lots of life preservers and boats and nets and things. It was all very quaint, but rescues didn't take place anymore. Only people of certain status and breeding were really accepted in the club. Oh, anyone could come in, but not all were warmly welcomed. In the meantime, hundreds and hundreds of people crashed on the rocky shoreline and drowned because the rescue station was no longer rescuing people. They'd lost their love. They'd lost their compassion. They became ingrown. They didn't look beyond the walls of the rescue station anymore. Are we a church that loves people and is still in the business of rescuing them? And we might say to ourselves, well, as a church, I think we're doing pretty good. 
Okay, how about as individuals? What is your love and compassion level? Remember, to show love to others is to show love to God. And God's charge against the people of Israel is, you don't have this love anymore. It's not present. And then the third issue, he said, there's no knowledge of God. The third charge God brings against Israel and against the church is a lack of knowledge of God. The word knowledge here is yada. It means an intimate heart knowledge. You know, a lot of people, well, you've heard it. I believe in God, right? I, I know enough about God. Um, Adam and Eve. Adam yada as Eve as his wife, and as a result, she conceived a child. In this context, the word obviously has a sexual connotation to it. The term yada describes the most intimate way a man can know his wife. This term also is frequently used by the Old Testament writers to describe the most intimate way that we can know God. It's a really deep level of intimacy. So, the idea here is not one of just knowing God or knowing about God, but of experiencing God. To know or to yada God is to know Him so perfectly that you will know if you are in His will or not. The slightest stirring of His Spirit is felt within you. And when we talk about a knowledge of God, we're not just talking merely of a head knowledge. He did not mean here that his people needed more head knowledge about God. Facts and figures at this point would be meaningless. God wants his people to have a true, experiential, intimate, heartfelt knowledge of him. Knowing about him isn't enough. And by the way, even what people think they know about God is very often in error. So this lack of knowledge or yada is the cause of the first two charges that we already mentioned. There is no truth, there is no love, because there's no knowledge of God. Without a true knowledge of God, without truly experiencing God, there's no truth and there's no love. So, so the first, one of the first things that the prophet Hosea says then in response to these charges that God brings is that we have to acknowledge God or give credit to God. Now, and I know I've shared this with you before, um, maybe not in the church so much, but I think it happens in the church sometimes too. But culturally, we are quick to give God credit for bad stuff. Right? Uh, um, tornadoes that destroy towns. Um, shootings somewhere. 
I mean, the list goes on and on. And it's, it's always God's fault, and we, God gets, we're, we're quick to give God credit for those things. Or is that quick to give God debit for those things? Anyway, I don't know. But anyway, we, we blame it on God. That's what happens. Now, the good stuff, that's a different thing. You know, we're, we're just lucky. I'm just that good. Everything's going my way. You know. So, God gets credit for the bad stuff. We get credit for the good stuff. Right? So, what happens? I hope it doesn't happen with us. But I think sometimes we can fall ourselves, find ourselves falling into that trap. So, we are to acknowledge God. Um, and hopefully, we are students enough of God's Word to understand, <clears throat> you know, why bad things... Now, we can't explain all of that. And there have been books written about, you know, why bad things happen to good people and theological minds that are exponentially greater than mine, you know, try to explain that. And All right? So, for some things, they're just... We live in a, in a world that's under the curse of sin. Just, if you can't go back to anything else, go back to that. And bad things happen. It's the old thing about the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Now, when you talk about the winter rains and the spring rains, it's refreshing. That sounds great. But if it's the kind of rains that causes flood, that sounds like a bad thing. And I really believe God does good things for bad people. Because he's gracious and he's merciful, right? So that kind of rain, it falls on the just and the unjust alike. God does good things for Christ followers too, believers. But torrential rains fall on the just and the unjust too. The kind that cause floods and problems. And people who aren't believers experience bad stuff in their lives. But guess what? We who are Christ followers experience bad stuff in our lives too. We're not immune because we love Jesus. Right? Sounds like we're pretty much in agreement. So, Hosea says, God says, it all starts with acknowledging me. We, we live in a world that tries to disacknowledge God. I know that's probably not a word, but that's what we try to do. Unacknowledge God. I, I, you know what I'm saying? We're pushing God, I mean, it's been going on in our country for quite a while. You know, uh, God's out, prayer's out of school, take the Ten Commandments down, etc., 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 on it goes. We're talking this morning about military chaplains can't talk about Jesus outside the military chapel. So, there is no acknowledgement of God. But he said... You need to acknowledge God. And guess what? It's up to us. It's up to us, right? It's up to us. We've got to acknowledge God. We have to thank Him. We have to praise Him. We have to recognize that He's in it with us, even when it's not going well and it's difficult. And we have to recognize where it comes from when it's great. 
We acknowledge God. Amen? That's part A. It's part A. Next week, we'll talk about what we, know, do, we need to do now to prepare the soil. Acknowledging God is just the, the tip of the spear there, all right? Um, we are going to partake of communion together this morning.